Amen. Let's pray. Dear Heavenly Father, we just come before you and we ask that you would take the service tonight and use it to your honor and glory. We ask that you would teach us and challenge us from your word. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. You may be seated. In there, I think Brother Jason still might have a few. If we run out, we'll just print some more. Uh, we are going through our study in theology, and uh, we're not going to shy away from big terms and words. Uh, I believe that uh, most big words have simple definitions. Uh, unfortunately, the topic of tonight is a big word, and it does not have a simple definition. Uh, and uh, the number one rule that we have often uh, talked about here in understanding the Bible is simply, if it does not help me to live tomorrow, if it does not give me instructions on how to be more obedient to the Word of God, then I shouldn't be wasting time uh, pursuing it. Uh, example, uh, who the sons of God were in Genesis chapter 6 that married the daughter the sons of man. Who, who were they? And... Uh, uh, there, there have been books written on the subject and all kinds of stuff is there. If you want the simplest answer to the question, it is the sons of God were the political leaders of the day. And the daughters of men, the emphasis was plural. And they began a plurality of marriage that dishonored how God started marriage in the first place. And uh, that this dishonor and this disreputable uh, definition of marriage produced people that went further and further from God until mankind became so corrupted that God had to give this world a bath. It was called Noah's Flood. That's the simplest and the most biblical understanding. You can disagree with that all you want. That is not dogmatic, and I won't spend any more time on it because it doesn't deserve any more time. Someone said, where did Cain get his wife? Uh, you need to be more concerned about what God has done with your personal sin than you need to be concerned with where Cain got his wife. Amen? Uh, the Bible doesn't tell us. We don't need to know. Uh, there are some answers if you want to go look them up, and, and I don't recommend it. Uh, but we are in the series, uh, of the section of theology called Bibliology. That is the doctrine of the Scriptures. And, and we've spent time talking about how the canon or the books that are in your Bible were put in there. And by the way, they were not chosen by a church council or a group of preachers or anything. Uh, they were chosen and used by the churches. And the councils that came along later uh, simply either agreed with what was already being used or, as the Catholics did in the year 1545, I think it was, the Council of Trent, uh, 1554, there we go, uh, at the Council of Trent, they added the Apocrypha to the Scriptures. Now, if that part of the Bible had been lost all of those years, would not Christianity have suffered? Oh, absolutely. But they weren't lost. 
They knew about these books all along. And they refused, the real church refused to use the books because they didn't belong in the Bible. And so when, what's his face, Ron Brown comes along with the Da Vinci Code. I laugh. That's ridiculous. If you know anything about your Bible at all, you've got to know that this guy is a total nutcase. He, he is not uh, bothering true Christianity. They settled the issue centuries, millennia, before this uh, prevaricator, uh, that's a real nice word for liar, was born. And we de- dealt with the central um, issue of the Bible last time we were together on this subject, and that is authority. Does the Bible have the right to tell you what to do, or does the understanding of the Scripture belong to a church or a group of men or a person, individual, who then can dictate to all the world what the Bible says? And uh, the answer to that is very simple. The authority is in the words of this book. It says, Scripture is of no private interpretation. What that means is, if you're the only guy smart enough to figure it out, you're not near as smart as you think you are. Uh, It needs to be read for what it says. And we believe in a literal, simple understanding of the Scripture, and that brings us to a term called dispensationalism. And... um, if you want hot topics, uh, just type in dispensationalism in your Google search engine and you're going to find people praising dispensationalism to the height and other people cursing it to the depth. And uh, uh, the reason why is dispensationalism really is nothing more than a method of Bible study. Now, I'll guarantee there are people out there who do more with dispensationalism than that. Uh, if you do, you're in trouble. Uh, I have some books on my shelf uh, that, uh, that I just have there. Uh, one was given to me. And I remember meeting the author one time, and I just looked at him, and I said, uh, I said, so you're an ultra-dispensationalist, huh? And he looked at me and said, well, I guess you might call me that. I said, I do. He said, do you even understand what it means? I said, yes. I I am one of those who knows what I'm talking about. And we began to engage in a little verbal fisticuffs there at his book table. And it didn't accomplish anything, nor was either one of us intending. It was just a nice little spar. We kept it very friendly. But... The reason why I bring this up is dispensationalism, when it is used properly, when it is kept in its proper place, gives us some things that you can't get anywhere else. And the first of that is, is the ability to be honest with the Scriptures. And by that, what I'm talking about is there are differences in your Bible. How did Abraham worship God? He got out his proverbial spade or whatever uh, tool might be handy 
or he had his servants pile up a pile of rocks wherever Abraham was. There was no specific place fixed for Abraham to worship God. And God told Abraham in Genesis chapter 22 to take Isaac up to Mount Moriah and offer him as a burnt sacrifice. Isn't that what it says in the Bible? And it was only when all was done except for the slaying of Isaac did God call to him out of heaven and said, Do the lad no harm. We read in the book of Hebrews what Abraham was thinking. That he would receive his son resurrected from the ashes of the offering. Now, you know what that tells us? That tells us that Abraham had a very simple, literal understanding of what God said until God stopped him on the mountain. And then Abraham said, we go back to Genesis chapter 22, Abraham said, In the mount of the Lord it shall be seen. Then he understood that God was teaching him something, giving us an example of what was going to be fulfilled when not Abraham, the father of those who have faith in God, he's called that in the Scriptures, but when God himself would offer his son a sacrifice for all sins. There would be no substitute for Jesus And by the way, Mount Moriah has another name. We call it Calvary. It is the place where God offered Himself a sacrifice for our sins. You see, if I choose a different type of biblical understanding... It denies the differences that are there. I remember talking with a Protestant preacher one time and he said, I said, well, where do you get this baby baptism thing? I said, you get it from the Catholic Church. And and they do, historically. And uh, he said, no, we do not. We, We believe that it is the covenant of grace with God that... God gave Israel circumcision and he gave the church uh, baptism of infants. And I said, you know, that's interesting. How in the world do you get the two connected to each other? With not making any differences in the scripture. And he looked at me and he says, well, it's just that way. Oh, Okay. Uh, would it be possible that Israel is Israel and the church is the church and they're not connected and one doesn't supersede the other? And as the conversation, well, you, you just believe in a literal interpretation of Scripture. Aha, yes I do. That makes me a dispensationalist, whether I want to admit it or not. Because a dispensational approach is a consistent, literal understanding of the Bible. It allows me to keep it in its context.
it allows me to take the grammar that is there, just like God told Abraham to offer Isaac a burnt offering. That was a literal statement. Abraham understood it in its literal sense and went to carry it out. And when God wanted him to see the spiritual aspect of it, he stopped him before the knife went into his son and any harm was done to him. And he pictured perfectly the vicarious or substitutionary death of Jesus Christ for the sins of mankind. Did he not? You see, I keep the Bible in its context. It's amazing that certain groups of people, and it still comes up today, what do you do with the Sabbath day? Uh, what did they do with the Sabbath day before Mount Sinai? Can anybody answer me that question? It says, God hallowed the seventh day. He sanctified it. Did Abraham keep the Sabbath day? No. Did Noah keep the Sabbath day? Did he only work on the ark six days a week? No, there's no evidence in Scripture that the Sabbath was set aside as a specific day of rest, as a commandment of God, until the Ten Commandments were written on Mount Sinai. Are we all together still? And so, they want to single out that commandment and say, see, you should worship God on the Sabbath day. Well, the Sabbath day was not the day of worship. It never was. Every day is the day of worship. And God set aside special days of worship that were called feasts in the Old Testament law. I've never met a Sabbath keeper who keeps Passover. Why don't you keep Passover? Oh, that's, that, that's different. That was fil- fulfilled in Jesus Christ. Oh, wait a minute. You, you agree with me. That's dispensationalism. No, it's not. Uh, well, then you can pick and choose what you want if you choose. But if I'm going to be consistent, and I read the book of Hebrews once again, God's switchboard, God's connection place, where He puts everything together, and it talks about there is a rest for the children of God. When is there a rest for the children of God? When I stop doing my own works and rest in Him. See what? Every day is to be a Sabbath. And you know what happens when you grow weary in well-doing, such as the Bible tells us? It's because we're not resting. It's because we're trying to perform good works to be pleasing unto God instead of going to God and getting His power and His authority to do what He wants us to do instead of what we think we ought to do. See, that's how we break the Sabbath today. And you can do it every day of the week if you choose. But if you want to keep the Sabbath, it is resting from my works and doing His works with His power. Are we still all together? I mean, this is not new if you've been around here very long, but 
Second Timothy 2.15 says, But to study to show thyself approved unto God, a workman that needeth not to be ashamed, rightly dividing the word of truth. Do you know what, what Paul was telling Timothy is, there are some differences in this book. It's not all oranges. It's not all exactly the same. There are some promises that was made to Abraham and his physical descendants. There are some promises that is made to the church in the Scripture. Uh, those things are separate. God deals differently. And what we must do is keep it in its context. There is a point of dividing the Word of God. And there are people who put things together that make absolutely no sense, like the connection of Israel and the church. I just don't see how you do that. When Paul, in Romans chapter 9, 10, and 11, clearly puts out that God has not thrown off Israel, that there are promises that have yet to be fulfilled. It was amazing reading... Um, one passage uh, uh, in, a, in a commentary, the, he was quoting, and, and the man said that uh, uh, since you believe that these promises of the kingdom are literal and we cannot find them fulfilled anywhere in history, then you believe that they still have to happen. So, wow, that's incredible. How simple and consistent and grammatically, contextually correct would that statement be? Well, then he goes on to say that that's absolutely an absurd way to approach the Scripture. And yet, you won't find anyone in the Scripture approaching the Scripture any other way. A simple, literal understanding of the Word of God. And by the way, next time your boss gives you specific instruction at work on how to, oh, uh, how to organize files on the computer so the boss can find them, just spiritualize his instruction and see how long, or her instruction, see how long you have a job. Oh, well, I did exactly what you said. It's just that I didn't do it literally. I did it figuratively. And they said, well, maybe we could give you a figurative paycheck. Uh, you go home and wish for it and see if it shows up, right? Uh, and so what we have to do here, and the reason why we use dispensationalism is it gives us, as I hope to show you in a few minutes, a continuity. That God didn't all of a sudden change his mind here. And this is often what you hear when you have Israel and the church connected, is God threw away Israel, and now he's got the church. Well, I don't find that in Scripture anywhere, that God discarded Israel. He gave them blindness for a time, it tells us. It tells us that he is using the Gentile church to provoke Israel to start looking to God, and it tells us that one day that He is going to restore Israel and the church together. So, 
we we just let me go over this next part very quickly. And, and um, again, uh, there are other types of biblical understanding. And, and I'm trying to be gracious here uh, that when I say demand less than a consistent literal understanding of the Bible. Um, you cannot be a covenant theologian and consistently, literally interpret the Bible. You have to spiritualize certain passages, and by that you have to look at the words in a given passage and say, those words don't mean what they say, they mean this. Well, who has the authority to do that is my question. Who has the authority to say that those words don't mean what they say? I tell you, I honestly suggest to this church tonight that no one has that authority and no one ever has had that authority. And one of the chief places they like to go is the book of Revelation there when it says that Christ shall rule and reign on this earth for a thousand years. Let's let's just go there for a minute. Revelation chapter 20. And uh, verse 4, it says, And I saw thrones, and they that sat upon them, and judgment was given unto them. And I saw the souls of them that were beheaded for the witness of Jesus and for the word of God, and which had not worshipped the beast, neither his image, neither had received his mark upon their foreheads or in their hands. And they lived and reigned with Christ a thousand years. But the rest of the dead lived not again until the thousand years were fulfilled. This is the first resurrection. Now, an amillennialist does not believe that. He does not believe there will be a thousand years where Jesus Christ will rule this earth with his saints. I don't know how you can believe that and say that you're literally understanding the scripture because right there it says... He's going to rule and reign a thousand years. Most of our most people who call themselves Calvinists, they want to divide the Bible up into three categories, and one of them has no bearing on human history at all. The first covenant, the covenant of redemption, was between God and Jesus Christ before creation, and then we have the covenant uh, of grace that goes from. Uh, Genesis chapter 3 and verse 15, all the way to Revelation chapter 22. And uh, then we get into the future. And they take everything and pour it into one vat. The church, Israel, the promises to Abraham, the promises to the church, salvation, uh, and try to uh, make Abraham... Understand that Jesus died on the cross and rose again. Abraham did not have that information. He had it in a picture of his son Isaac that it would be God's son who would die on that same mountain, but he didn't know it was going to be on a cross. He didn't know any of those things. When he got to heaven, Jesus, when he was here on earth, said, Abraham rejoiced to see my day. And the Pharisee said, you're not even 50 years old, have you? and you claim to have seen Abraham? And Jesus made a simple statement. He said, before Abraham was, I 
am. And immediately they picked up stones to try to kill him because they understood that he was claiming to be God. The same God that appeared to Moses and said, I am that I am sent you into Egypt to bring my people out. And so, um, we have uh, uh, people who refuse dispensationalism. We'll just call them non-dispensationalists for tonight. Um, The majority of non-dispensationalists are also non-conservative in their theology. Meaning that uh, not all uh, people who reject dispensationalism are liberal in their theology, but all liberal theologians who deny the virgin birth, who deny the miracles and deity of Christ, they are all non-dispensational. If you are liberal in your approach, if you deny the veracity of words in this book, you do not embrace dispensationalism because dispensationalism binds you to a consistent, literal understanding of the Scripture. I just don't want to go there. I want to keep it straight. And uh, there, there are a group of conservative, non-dispensationalists, meaning that they believe in salvation by grace through faith. Uh, they believe in the deity of Christ and the sinfulness of man. But they pick and choose which parts they're going to be conservative and literal about and which parts they're going to be non-conservative and non-literal about. And that's left up to the whim and fancy of men. That's why we are dealing with dispensationalism tonight because it demands a consistent, literal understanding of the Word of God. And... uh, uh, is every, you know, if you're on the web, and I, I don't recommend you get your theology off the web. I really don't. There's just so much out there that is very dangerous. In fact, I could give you very bad books to read on the subject of biblical understanding, and most of you, just because you don't, haven't been to Bible college and know what exact words to look for, would miss a lot of it and say, oh, that sounds pretty good. The reason why we're doing this is to give you some phrases so that you can pick up on what sounds really sounds pretty good but isn't. When someone starts connecting Israel and the church, that should be a red beacon. That should be the sign waving in the distance. You're dealing with someone who doesn't believe in a literal understanding of the Bible. When someone talks about uh, not believing in the thousand-year reign of Christ, you're dealing with someone who does not consistently, literally understand their Scriptures. And my recommendation as a pastor is, leave it alone. You don't need that information. It's not going to help you. You can get much better information other places that's going to help you live for God. Um, dispensationalism does not answer every question and it is not perfect because let's go back to the beginning. It's a method of Bible study. And if you do anything more than that with it, you're going to get into trouble. 
And that's where the people who are called ultra-dispensationalists come in. Uh, I met a guy one time, the man I was talking about. He believes that only the epistles of Paul have any bearing on the life of a Christian today. That Genesis through the end of the book of Acts, and that uh, then we pick up again with the book of James and go through the book of Revelation are non-topical for the Christian today. So what do you do when Paul says all Scripture is given by inspiration of God and is profitable for doctrine? Well, you ignore it because you want to keep to your truth. And there are people who divide the Bible up into uh, one guy I read about divided the Bible up into three different dispensations between Jesus Christ and the Apostle Paul. And see, they know one thing for sure. The church did not start on the day of Pentecost, but it had to start before Acts chapter 28. So my question is, what to what were the people added on the day of Pentecost if there was no church to add them to. You see, we believe that Jesus began his church in his earthly ministry, forming an organic link of the body of Christ, which is the local church, to the Savior. Which means Johnny-come-latelys, such as the popes and the... Um, oh, what do they call them in the Orthodox Church? Our, uh, the bishop, archbishop, uh, the archbishop of Constantinople, or uh, if you're if you're Greek or Istanbul, if you're geographically correct, uh, they believe that they started their churches there, the head of their churches. No, Jesus started his church; he's still building it today. Martin Luther had no standing because he was part of a non-candlestick church. He died baptized a Catholic. He's non-topical. He didn't start a church. He started an organization that is called the church because Jesus started his church. Was Martin Luther wrong about everything? No. Martin Luther preached salvation by grace. But I challenge you to search this world over and try to find a Lutheran that still preaches salvation by grace today. You can find them, but you're going to have to do an awful lot of hunting because it never was a true church. Why are all the Anglicans going back to the Catholic Church? Because that's where they came from. It's, it's just that simple. Jesus started his church while he was here on earth. Now, we got eight minutes left here. I want you to turn your paper over. I'm going to try to illustrate in eight minutes what's on the back of your paper here. Fasten your seatbelts. No. Uh, we have been over this in great depth in studies before, and I apologize if you were not here for it. But what I want you to see is... Uh, there are listed, and this is by no means exhaustive, but it is fairly thorough, uh, the ongoing truths that God established. 
we go back to innocence. This was Adam and Eve in the garden. They were innocent. They, they were free moral beings. Sin had not yet entered the world. But it did when we got to Genesis chapter 3. Say, how long did it last? Well, true dispensationalism is not near as concerned with the time period affixed to the issue as it is with God's revelation. And we have God establishing himself as the creator, the supreme ruler, that he is interested in having a relationship with man. That has not changed and will never change. Man and woman are complete and separate from all other created things. That was established thoroughly because Adam could not find and help meet for him in all of creation. God established marriage. Don't you wish we could get our Supreme Court and, uh, and some politicians to understand that marriage is not a societal invention? that it was established by God in the Garden of Eden before there ever was such a thing as a human government. We don't get to human government until uh, the third dispensation, okay? And uh, uh, God establishes man's responsibility to obey God, and God punishes man for disobedience to God. We come to conscience, and this is where Abel offers his lamb, and Cain murders Abel. And God takes all the things that we have dealt with in 1, 2, 3, and 4. And by the way, why would God, people be arguing about where Cain got his wife if God hadn't established marriage before Cain was around? Just a thought. Um, God's judgment for man's sin and struggle to survive. Man, a woman's pain in childbirth. By the way, uh, we have a little experience with that. It still works that way. And God expelled them from the garden. That was his judgment. God comes seeking after man. You have to remember that. God wants to reconcile man to himself. And he killed those animals for clothing for Adam and Eve. And that's why Abel brought a lamb. There's nothing else in there that there's going to be a battle between the forces of those who would obey God and those who would not. At the end of Noah's flood, we have Noah offering clean animals for sacrifice. That there was difference between animals that were good for sacrifice and animals that were bad for sacrifice. God explained that. Where was that listed? You know what? It's not written down. It's just understood. So God gave instruction. When we get to the law, it's thoroughly explained and put down in such a way. But God establishes human government after the flood. He said, if man sheds man's blood by man, shall his blood be shed. Maybe we could talk to Governor Cuomo I and explain to him that capital punishment was not an invention of the state for retribution of wrong deeds. It was established by God to set a level of justice for that man which would choose, or woman, who would choose to take another human being's life. And, of course, the first thing they say is, what about war? Uh, 
You have to be a real imbecile. I'm sorry. You have to be just completely thoughtless to equate war with murder. Does sometimes murder go on in war? (laughs) It most certainly does. Uh, That's why we call it war crimes. But when you are sent, when you are defending your country, you are not committing murder. That would take so many of our Vietnam vets out of the psych wards. You know that? If they could just understand that God set this up. It would help. We have God separating Abraham from all the families of the earth in the, in the dispensation of promise. And he makes specific promises to Abraham and to his seed. We have this thing called tithing. That shows up when Abraham gave tithes to Melchizedek, the king of Salem. Uh, I've had people try to tell me, tithing is under the law. It's not biblical. It's not by grace. Well, if you want to argue with it, hey, be my guest. But I want to tell you something. Tithing was before the law, during the law, and after the law. It's simply established by God as the beginning of a way for you to show God your respect and your love for Him. That, I mean, that, we could spend the whole night just teaching on that, but we're not going to. It, God established it, and it's still going on. And by the way, God won't send you to hell if you don't tithe. That doesn't work that way. We, uh, God will only send you to hell for refusing to believe on Jesus Christ. Now we come to the law. We're five dispensations into human history. Before we get to the law. Now, what was the law? It was the codification of God's revelation to mankind. Up to this point, all of God's revelation could be held easily in the memory of any person who wanted to seek God. But when you have 613 laws in the Old Testament law, you know what? You just might forget one. And so God had a man named Moses write them all down so that you could reference them and you could know what is right and what is wrong. Each one of those laws points you to the Lord Jesus Christ. Every one of them will, if you'll just let them. Then we have the dispensation of grace. By the way, well, let me finish this and then we'll tie it up. This is where you are saved, not by keeping the law, but by the sacrifice of Jesus Christ according to the law, the fulfillment of the law. By the way, you weren't saved by the sacrifices under the law either. Anyone who will tell you that is not giving a literal understanding. Why did David in Psalm 51 said? Sacrifice thou requires not. Otherwise, I'd have brought it. He says, you want a broken and a contrite spirit. He said, that's the sacrifice that I am bringing. And God forgave David his great sin. What did Daniel do when the temple was destroyed and there was no place to take his sacrifice for his entire adult life? Did God take away his salvation because he never offered a sacrifice? Of course not. Daniel was a great man of faith because he obeyed what the Word of God said 
where he was. He prayed three times. Now, a day, that's what got him thrown in the lion's den. If you try to get to heaven by praying three times a day, guess what? You'll still be on your knees when you drop through the floor into the pit of hell forever. Because it's by faith in God. You see, here's the difference between the dispensationalist and the covenant theologian, the non-dispensationalist. There are other types, of course. Is the sum total of all religion that is not based upon a simple literal understanding is salvation. The goal of all of God's revelation is so man can be saved in that thought process. Could I challenge you that God has more for the believer than just getting saved? Uh, Ephesians chapter 2 says that in the ages to come, God wants to be glorified in the lives of those that believe in Him. And if you don't believe that, read Hebrews chapter 11, the chapter of faith. He talked about Abel's sacrifice, speaking of greater things than these, and being dead, yet speaketh. How do we reconcile that if Abel and Paul are under the same covenant? And that there's no absolute difference between the two of them. I'll tell you what, you can't do it. You cannot be literal and consistent in your handling of the Word of God. The theme, let's go back to the first page. I just want to read this definition. We'll be done. Dispensationalism is an approach to understanding the Bible that demands the entire Bible to be the authoritative revelation of God to mankind. There is no contradiction or opposition of one scripture to another. Now, right here, you throw out the Calvinists, the Amillennialists, the, the uh, Modernists, the Liberal, all of those people, because they, con- they use Scripture contradicting one another to arrive at their various points of belief. We refuse that as a dispensationalist. And, and as, uh, with this basis... With this understanding, the dispensationalist recognizes the changes in God's dealing with man, allowing things that would naturally seem contradictory to work together under the unfolding and progressive revelation of God. That's why it's not a contradiction for an Old Testament saint under the law to take a sacrifice to the temple that was in Jerusalem. It's not contradictory at all. That's what the Bible, the revealed Word of God that he had, said to do. Today, we don't do that. Why? Because Jesus fulfilled the law. You see, once something is fulfilled, you don't have to fill it again. Once a debt is paid, you don't pay it again. See, I don't serve Christ out of debt. I serve Him out of love because He paid my debt that the law demanded. Amen? And let's read on. Furthermore, dispensationalism claims the overriding theme of the Scriptures to be the glorification of God. Man, in order to fill his part in this theme, must be redeemed through the grace of God, applied to the individual life by faith, 
in the revelation that mankind has been given to that distinct point in time in which that man or woman lives. Noah, by faith, built an ark. That doesn't contradict. Believe on the Lord Jesus Christ and thou shalt be saved. You know why? Because Noah didn't have the book of Acts. We make the Bible one book consistently from cover to cover. And things that might seem contradictory now are in total agreement. It demands work. But ought not God's word be worth a little effort? And that's why we are spending time with this. Because this will make a difference in how you approach the Word of God. And how you approach this book will make a difference in your obedience and in your daily living. And so, um, these things are important. Don't go out and try to read every book on dispensationalism. What I would challenge you to do is read your Bible and look for some of the differences and see how they connect one with each other in perfect harmony, especially when we get to the book of Hebrews. Because that's where so many of the connections are made. I serve the risen Christ. And there is no contradiction between what I did, what I do in my life, and what David did in his life. It is still able, a salvation by grace through faith. That's why he brought a lamb. Cain was condemned by grace through non-faith in God. God's goodness was there. He talked to him. He said, if thou do not well, sin lieth at the door. says, one of Abel's lambs is right there. You can make the sacrifice and you will be accepted by me. Instead of having faith in God. He had faith in himself and murdered his brother and lost God's grace in hope of eternity with Christ. You see, it's by grace through faith. But we recognize that different people in different times of history had differing amounts of revelation. You say, well, what do you do with people who today who don't know? Read Acts chapter 19. Oh boy, I could kiss go on all night. I'm sorry. Read Acts chapter 19. Those that had John's message, what happened? They had to get saved. After they got saved, they had to get baptized. Even though that they were dunked in the water before, and it was called baptism, it didn't fit the Bible thing. They were ignorant of what the Bible taught. And God brought them to Paul, who gave them current revelation, and they got things straightened out and went on through life. We'll see them in heaven. But if they had refused what Paul had taught, that was evidence that they never received what John the Baptist had taught. Amen.
Okay, I'll let you go. Sorry. Dear Heavenly Father, we thank you for your word. Lord, I pray that we could take this complicated and complex issue and make it simple enough for each one here to grasp and to get a hold of and to, Lord, look for those warning signs. Anytime someone says, well, the word doesn't really mean what it says, they better know they're in trouble and to get out of there. Lord, we ask that you would use this lesson to protect those that are in this auditorium from the snares of the devil that he would lie lay for them. And Lord, that we would have a greater desire and a greater literalness in our obedience to what we do know and what is plainly said in your word. We ask you to work in hearts and lives that we may serve you. Before we finish that prayer, we'll just keep our heads bowed. If you need to slip out of your seat and spend some time with the Lord.